we are continuing our study in the book of Acts. We are in Acts chapter 21 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 27 through 36. So if you can open up your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 21. We're looking at verses 27 through 36 this morning. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him. Thus sends our reading of God's life-changing word. May all who hear it find that they have been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. If, if there is one thing that you learn being a missionary in Thailand is that the Thai people have this saying. And, and, and that saying is this, ben Thai ben put. It means to be Thai is to be Buddhist. Now, now when a Thai person says this, what, what they are truly communicating is that at the core of their identity is the Buddhist religion. In order to truly be Thai, then you must be a Buddhist. And that's because the, the Buddhist religion is pretty much ingrained in every aspect of their lives. For instance, in every city and, and in every village, there are Buddhist temples practically around every corner. But not only that, but, but Buddhism, Buddhism is also the state religion. And so you will find idols of Buddha in every government-run building. They are in police stations, they are in firehouses, they are, they are in post offices, and, and they are even on military bases. And in fact, when you are a kid and, and you go to school, the, the first things that the, the, the teachers will have the students do before they even enter the building is to bow down to that idol. There are idols in the marketplace. There are idols in the hospitals. There are idols of him in the wilderness. And there are idols of him in pretty much every home as well. Buddha is everywhere in Thailand. 
But, but not only does he fill the landscape, but, but Buddha's teaching encompasses all that the people do as well. It's the basis of Thai morality. It's ingrained in their laws. It's ingrained in their customs. It's why you always see a Thai person with a smile on his or her face. Because Buddha taught them to be content in their station in life and not to show any displays of discontentment or anger. And these things are just the tip of the iceberg. And bottom line, ben Thai, ben put. To be Thai is to be Buddhist. And this is one of the major reasons that the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ has been so difficult in that country. It's why Thailand is currently less than 2% Christian, even though the church has has been there for, for hundreds of years, even though a slew of missionaries have been sent to its shores. It is why when a Thai person does convert, when they do become a Christian, many of them are cut off not only from their communities, but from their families as well. You see, for, for a Thai to convert to the Christian faith, in a sense it is to reject one's Thai-ness. It's to reject one's own identity. And, and so the Thai person must truly count the cost before they follow Christ. Why do I say this? Well, in the first century, the church faced a similar challenge when bringing the gospel to the Jewish community. For the, for the Christian faith presented an identity crisis for the Jewish people. And this caused some very, very strong reactions from those who had rejected their Messiah. And no more do we see such strong reactions in our passage for today. But before we get into that, I do want to take a moment to reflect on where we are in this book. We, we have reached a turning point in the book of Acts, and really a, a turning point in Paul's ministry. You see, while Paul has seen hardship before, he has been able to minister with relative freedom. Yes, he has been chased out of towns. Yes, he, had, he has had to flee for his life. Yes, there was even one point where he, he had been on the brink of death. But for the most part, he had been free from the chains of this world. In fact, we, we only know of one time where he was imprisoned before this date, and that was in Philippi. But even then, that was only for one night. And, and while he was brought to court a few times, those trials, they never went anywhere. And yet from here on out in the, in the book of Acts, we will see this apostle to the Gentiles minister in a new context. No longer will Paul be able to work in freedom. No longer will he be able to go about of his own free will. Rather, he would have to make his case for Christ before from behind bars. And going forward, we will see how God will use Paul, will use his apostle to have a positive impact for the kingdom, even in the midst of what seems to be negative circumstances. We will see God using 
the, the wickedness of men in order to further his secret purposes. But before we look at that, let's see how Paul got there. Let's look at our passage again. Look at, look at verses 27 through 29 once more. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple, and he has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. And so here we see our apostle entering the temple courts within Jerusalem. Luke tells us that the seven days were almost completed. What, what does that mean? What does Luke mean that the seven days were almost completed? What were these seven days? And why did it require Paul to go to the temple? If you recall, it, it was the Holy Spirit who had led Paul to Jerusalem in the first place. The Spirit had told him that he was to go to Jerusalem and then to Rome. And yet the Spirit also told him that, that what would be awaiting him in Jerusalem was imprisonment and afflictions. And yet before those things came, Paul had the opportunity to meet with the elders of the Jerusalem church and give them his missionary report. This is what we read about last Sunday. And it was from these elders that, that he learned about the rumors that were being spread about himself and about his teachings. Many of the, the new Jewish converts were being told that, that Paul spoke against Moses and against the law. And so the suggestion that these elders put forth was for Paul to purify himself and to go with four other men, men who were under a Nazareth vow, and for Paul to pay for their expenses as a means to demonstrate that he truly does live in observance to the law. Well, these things would set off a chain of events that would eventually lead to his arrest. For to purify oneself took seven days. And Paul would have to go to the temple twice. The first time to, to notify the priests. And then the second time to go with his four new companions in order that they might finish their vows. And this is what Luke meant when, when he said that the seven days were almost completed. Paul was at the end of his purification, and he was now making that second trip to the temple courts. And yet because he was there, this gave opportunity for him to be spotted by some of his enemies, by these Jews from Asia. Most likely these were men from Ephesus, as Paul had spent roughly three years there preaching Christ. That's why these men easily recognized him. For Paul was a, a very divisive figure in that city. And what's also likely is that these were probably the same, very same Jews who were spreading the rumors about Paul to begin with. And now here they were, stirring up the crowd because of Paul. 
So, so not only were, were they the cause of the, of the disharmony within the church, but now they were the cause of this upheaval that we see in Jerusalem near the gates of the temple. And what was their main issue with the Apostle Paul? His teaching, right? They, they did not like the gospel message. And the reason they didn't like the gospel message was because they didn't like God's Messiah. They had rejected Jesus Christ. And yet instead of dealing with the claims of the gospel itself, these men became deceivers. They became rumor spreaders and manipulators of men. And now here they were distorting the truth once again, painting Paul's message in the most negative light that they possibly could. And they even accused him of an act that he didn't commit. And the reason they did all of this was so that they could get the crowd on their side, right? They wanted a riot. They wanted to form a mob. Now, there were four accusations that they had pit against Paul. Three that had to do with Paul's teaching, and then another that had to do with Paul's action, right? That he had brought a Greek into the, into the temple and thus defiled it. Let's, let's first consider the, the accusations against Paul's teaching and let's see what, what it was that Paul taught that got these men so upset. Accusation number one, they claim that Paul taught against the people, meaning that he taught against the Jews. Now, Paul himself was a Jew, Right? So, so why in the world would, would they think that Paul was teaching against his own people? Well, this had everything to do with the gospel message, right? With the new covenant that, that Jesus has established. I mean, consider Paul's words in Galatians. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verses 28 and 29. Paul says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For, if you are, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Here we see Paul explaining the, the, the new identity for those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Paul, Paul was teaching that, that it doesn't matter a person's ethnicity, whether he was born a Jew or a Gentile, but that it is through Jesus that one becomes a child of the promise, that one becomes Abraham's offspring. Now this, this was a radical teaching. For the title, Child of Abraham, and being an heir to the promise had always been reserved for the Jews. You see, the, the, the Jews would argue that according to Moses, a man must be circumcised if he is to belong to Abraham. And this is what we read about in Genesis, right? Consider Genesis chapter 17, verses 9 through 14. And God said to Abraham, As for you... You shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep 
between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now this seems pretty straightforward, does it not? In order to belong to God's covenant people, a man must be circumcised. And yet here was Paul teaching that the Gentiles can enter into God's kingdom without circumcision. How could this be? Consider Paul's words in in his letter to the Romans. Look at Romans chapter 2, verses 25 through 29. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code in circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so according to Paul, true circumcision is a matter of the heart, and not a matter of of one's outward appearance. It is an internal work of the Holy Spirit. And so these Gentiles who have been rescued by Jesus, who who have received the Holy Spirit, they are no longer required to have this outward marking because inwardly they have already been marked. And thus a true Jew is one who has been circumcised within his heart. Now, it was teachings like this that angered these Jews from Asia. For they saw it as an attack on their own identity. And yet we must ask the question, did Moses teach anything different? I argue no. Look at, look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 16. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. 
Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heavens of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your hearts and be no longer stubborn. You see, what, what, what Paul was teaching was no different than what Moses taught. Paul just happened to have the lens, which is the light of Christ, through which to interpret Moses. And yet, when you reject God's Messiah, when you reject Jesus, your eyes become blind to the truth, the truth which is in God's Word. Well, this explains the first accusation against Paul that he taught against the people. But what about the second accusation? That, that the accusation that Paul taught against the law, that he taught against the commandments of God. Where, where does this claim come from? Well, we talked much about this last Sunday, did we not? But, but, but the gist of it comes down to this. That Paul taught that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, and thus through him certain things are done away with. Paul states this plainly in, in Romans chapter 10 when he speaks of these ethnic Jews who have rejected Jesus. By rejecting Christ, they, they have rejected the fulfillment of the law which produces righteousness. Look, look at Romans 10 verses 1 through 4. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear, wit bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. <clears throat> In other words, when it, when it came to a man's righteousness before God, the law must be fulfilled perfectly. And yet, that can only be accomplished by the God-man himself, Jesus Christ. And so when Paul says that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, he, he means that those who have faith in Jesus they will receive the righteousness of Jesus because Jesus has fulfilled the law for them. Therefore, the Father will see them as he sees his own Son, as having perfectly fulfilled the law. Again, this, this challenges the identity of these Jews for, for they have staked their whole lives on obtain, obtaining a righteousness through their own works, through their own merit. And yet what Paul is saying is that a true righteousness, a, a true fulfillment of the law can only be accomplished through faith in Jesus Christ. Again, it is an attack on their identity. Well, let's continue. Let's look at accusation number three that Paul taught against this place. 
What did these men mean when, when they said this place? Well, it was the place where they were, they, where they were standing. They, they, they meant the temple. The temple of the Almighty God. And so they were accusing, call, accusing Paul of teaching against the temple. Again, this is a gospel issue, is it not? For now that, that Jesus has become our righteousness, now that we have forgiveness through his shed blood, the temple has lost its main function, right? Look, look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him, meaning Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And so in a sense, Paul spoke against the temple and the fact that these sacrifices that were still being made there for the forgiveness of sins were pointless. They held no power. Yes, before Jesus came, the sacrifices had meaning as they were foreshadowing Jesus. But now that Jesus has come, now that Jesus has died upon that cross for our sins, we find in him this once-for-all sacrifice that covers the sins of many. And furthermore, the temple of God was supposed to be the place of God's presence, was it not? And yet because Jesus has come and has dwelt among us, because he has become our once-for-all sacrifice, well, now the dwelling place of God has been relocated relocated into the hearts of those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Dear friends, if you are in Christ, then the spirit of the living God dwells within you. The, the, the curtain that inside that stone temple, it was torn in two. And it is through Jesus that you have now been granted access into the heavenly throne room. You are to no longer find forgiveness through the blood of bulls or the blood of goats. Rather, it is through the better blood that was poured out upon that cross through which forgiveness can be found. Through the blood of Jesus Christ. You are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. And yet for those who have rejected Jesus, they will no longer find forgiveness in that old stone temple. They, they will no longer find God's presence there as well. Their sins will remain with them because, because they, the, the one that they have rejected is the only true sacrifice that can atone for their sins. He is, and he is the only mediator that can bring them into the Father's presence. Again, it, it, it was teaching such as this 
that, that was seen as a direct attack on these, man's, on these men's Jewish identity. For, for access to the one true God belonged to the Jews. And, and forgiveness of sins was to be found in the temple alone. And so to be a Jew was, was to find forgiveness and to have God Almighty dwelling among you. And yet now Paul was challenging these claims by stating that, that forgiveness and access to God can only be found through Jesus Christ. I, I hope you are seeing a theme here. These first three accusations that Paul taught against the people, that Paul taught against the law, and that Paul taught, taught against this place, that these three things were directly tied to these men's Jewish identity. I mean, think about it. It was, it was through circumcision that the Jews were under the covenant of God and thus were considered the people of God. And it was through the law that God showed them how to live as the people of God and where they found their righteousness. And it was through the temple that they could come into God's presence, find forgiveness of their sins, assuring them of God's blessings as his people. And yet what Paul taught in their minds was an attack on all three things. And yet it was all because they had rejected Jesus and they were now blind to the truth. For when you reject Jesus, you reject the very one who is at the heart of all those things. For Christ is the key to understanding the true meaning of not only what it means to be a Jew, but to understanding the law and to understanding the temple. For he is the one who defines what they truly are. And yet that definition wasn't acceptable to these Jews. Because if they accepted it, if they, if they believed that Jesus was their Messiah, it would demonstrably change not only what they believed, but their own identity. And I believe that this, this was why they became so angry and so violent. For Paul was a walking reminder to them that they were living a lie. And thus we see this fourth accusation, an accusation that was blatantly false. They had accused Paul of, of bringing a Greek past, past the court of the Gentiles and into the inner courts, thus defiling the temple. Now, defiling the temple of God was a, a grave offense. And in fact, it was, it was so bad that it was punishable by death. This, this is why there was a sign posted above every gate, every gate a, a sign which read, No foreigner may enter within the balustrade around the sanctuary and the enclosure. Whoever is caught on himself shall he put blame for the death which will ensue. And so the Jews were serious about this. And they had even convinced the Romans to carry out the, these punishments for them, since it was a capital offense. And so this fourth accusation against Paul, that he had brought Trophimus, the Ephesian Gentile, into the inner courts, that was a serious, serious charge. 
And not only would Trophimus's life be at risk, but also Paul's, this Jew who had supposedly led this Gentile there. And yet this accusation was just the fancy of these Jews from Asia. They, they only said this because they, because they had seen Trophimus with Paul in other parts of Jerusalem, and they presumed the worst. These men wanted this to be true. And they wanted it to be true so, they, so that they might have an actual charge with which they could murder Paul. And remember, these men were good at spreading rumors. And what better rumor to spread than one that would rile up the rest of the Jews and cause them to act out in violence towards this man. And that was the exact outcome that we see. Look, look back at Acts chapter 21. Look at verse 30. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. Paul now found himself surrounded by an angry mob, right? They, they had seized him, dragged him out of the temple, and shut the gate behind them. And the reason they shut the gate was because their intentions were to kill this man. They didn't want to defile the temple themselves by, by spilling blood uh, upon holy ground. I hope you see the irony in that. They, they, they wanted to honor God, yet they wanted to murder. Bottom line, Paul's life was in grave danger. And without some type of intervention, he would have most likely died. And yet God had other plans, did he not? Look at verses 31 and 32. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Next to Herod's temple, there was this military fortress called the Tower of Antonia. The Romans had built it as a way of maintaining control over the affairs of the Jews. This was, this was why it was in the location that it was in, because all the real action took place at the temple. And this was a large fortress, able to station up to 600 Roman soldiers at the same time. And because it was a, a, a tower reaching 75 feet into the air, it, it gave these soldiers a, a vantage point in order that they might see all the goings-on in the temple courts. And so on this fateful day, it didn't take long for these soldiers to, to see this angry mob beating the Apostle Paul. And I'm sure within seconds of its start, the commanding officer knew what was, what was happening. And what did this tribune do? He, he, he rushed down the steps with the mighty force of his soldiers at his back. He was going to put a stop to this mob violence, and he would do so quickly. Now we will come to learn later in the book of Acts that this tribune's name was Claudius Lysias. 
And that as a tribune, he was, he was charged to maintain civil order within Jerusalem. And so it wasn't so much that, that this man cared for Paul. He just didn't want to see violence in his city, especially if it wasn't coming from the hands of the Romans. Mob justice was not acceptable. And that was why he rushed down these steps. But I hope you noticed as well that it took the fury, the, the, the power of these Roman soldiers for these Jews to stop beating Paul. Only when Claudius showed up, along with his few hundred soldiers at his back, did these men stop. I'm sure they would have continued their beating until Paul was dead had it not been for their fear of Rome's presence. And yet, even though the, the thrashing had ceased, the, the confusion of this mob persisted, right? And that's because the violence that was in their hearts had yet to dissipate. Look at, look at verses 33 through 36. Then the tribune came up and, uh, and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were, were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Here we finally see the arrest of the apostle Paul just as the prophet Agabus had demonstrated to him. Remember, it was, it was Agabus who had, who had taken Paul's belt, tied up his own hands and feet, and then said this, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And so Paul knew that this was coming. Yet what Paul didn't know was that this binding would actually save his life. You see, the best way for Claudius to, to silence this mob was to arrest Paul. Even though he didn't know who Paul was or what crime he was being accused of, he knew that he had to bind this man in chains if he, if he was going to appease this violent mob. I mean, imagine if he would have tried to, to lead Paul away without chaining him. This vicious crowd would have would have felt that no justice was being served. And it may have even caused further violence, if not even a revolt. And so in his wisdom, Claudius had put the shackles upon this apostle. And yet even though Claudius had gained some kind of control, there was still much confusion, right? He wanted to know who this man was and why he was being beaten. He was looking for information. And yet this mob seemed to be just as confused as him. Claudius couldn't get a straight answer. Some were shouting one thing while others were shouting something else. And they were shouting over each other. It was simply a big chaotic mess. Well, Claudius knew that he was getting nowhere. And that, and that is why he took Paul away in order that he might question him. And yet, in his, in his, even in his attempts to bring, bring his prisoner to the Tower of Antonia, 
His soldiers were having difficulties, right? The crowd was pressing upon them. And I'm sure there was still a number of irate men who were trying to reach out and and grab at Paul in the hopes of somehow harming him. Luke tells us that these soldiers actually had to lift Paul up and carry him in order to get him into that building. And then consider what the crowd was shouting. Away with him! Away with him! In other words, they were asking for these soldiers to execute him. Again, I ask the question, what could cause a crowd like this to become so angry, to be so filled with hate that they wanted nothing more than to take a man's life? I mean, this Jewish mob, they didn't seem content with Roman justice, now did they? Rather, they still wanted to take matters into their own hands. And that's why they were pressing upon these soldiers and shouting for Paul's execution. They didn't want true justice. They wanted mob justice. But why? What would drive them to such madness? Because of what Paul represented. Because of what Paul's teaching meant. Remember earlier I said that the common theme of their accusations against Paul was that they were directly tied to their Jewish identity. Because Paul taught that Jesus is the Messiah, that he was a Messiah not only to the Jews but to the Gentiles as well. They now saw Paul as a threat, a threat to who they were as a people. And yet it was their rejection of Jesus that was truly causing them to feel this way. Because if if Jesus truly was the Messiah, that meant that their beliefs about the temple were wrong. That their beliefs about God's law were wrong. And that their beliefs of what it means to be God's people were wrong. I mean, do you see it? This this has everything to do with their identity. When Jesus came upon the scene, he, he threw a big wrench into this system in which they had constructed for themselves. A system that was built upon animal sacrifices. A system that was built upon obedience to the law. A system where, where the people of God could be identified outwardly. And yet now Jesus says that those things were simply outward manifestations of a greater inward reality. That those things find their fulfillment in him. And because Paul preached Jesus, and because he was God's apostle to the Gentiles, to these uncircumcised people who are now considering themselves children of God, while Paul represented, represented an attack to these Jews, an attack upon their own identity. And this angered them to no end. And that, my friends, is why they wanted Paul dead. And you know what the crazy thing about all this is? It's that the mob is right. The the, the message of Jesus is all about changing one's identity. 
It's all about letting go of our earthly ideas of what we think makes us who we are and then conforming to his idea of, of who he has made us to be. Bottom line, it is through Jesus Christ that we now obtain our identity. Consider these words from the Apostle John. Look at, look, look at 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Dear friends, what, what this passage is saying is that in Christ, we are God's children. We have been adopted into his family. And that is why we call him Abba Father. And the Holy Spirit is now shaping us. He is forming us into the image of Jesus. He is creating in us a new identity. And at Christ returns, God will finish the work. And our full identity will be revealed unto his glory. And all these earthly terms that we, that, that we used to throw about will be no more. We will no longer distinguish ourselves by our ethnicity nor by our geographical upbringing. We will no longer consider ourselves Americans, nor will we be Jews, nor will we be Thai. We won't identify ourselves by the color of our skin because those things are the things that divide us. Rather, we will identify ourselves as children of God, that we are brothers and sisters and Jesus Christ. And we will discover who we truly are in him because that is all that matters. Everything else is just an idol. But why are we considered children of God? It's all because of what Christ did for us. Because he died for us in order that he could give to us our true identity. <coughs> been tied, been put? Uh-uh. Been crit, been luke kong prajao. To be Christian is to be a child of God. Let us pray. Father, we are so thankful that we no longer need to conform to the ways of this world. That we no longer need to establish our identity by where we were born or by what family we were born into. Nor is our identity defined by what we do or by any outward signs upon our bodies. Rather, our, our identity is established through your Son. It is in Jesus that 
that we truly discover who we are, that we are your children and heirs to the promise. And this is only accomplished because of what Jesus did for us, that he died for us. And we thank you for sending to us your Holy Spirit who is transforming us from within through the circumcision of our hearts. We are your people because you chose us. And so we give to you all glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.